Opinions expressed on Mountain Talk do not necessarily reflect those of WMMT, Apple Shop Incorporated, or the station's funders. If there were going to be music that would go with your story, do you have any thoughts on what kind of music would be fitting? Sad song. (laughs) A sad song. everybody for coming. I appreciate it. My name is Randy Steidel. I am first off an exonerated death row inmate and uh, I got out in 2004. In 2006 I joined an organization called Witness to Innocence. We are a nonprofit organization made up of exonerated death row men and women for the exoneree and ran by exonerees. I recently uh, rotated off the board as the former chairman and now I'm back out on the road speaking and what Witness Innocence does is we go to different states who have a reasonable chance of maybe repealing the death penalty and replacing it with life without parole plus compensation to the victim's family members and when we're not lobbying legislators we speak to communities such as this try to educate the public exactly the costs, the human costs and the financial costs of the death penalty. And I'll give an overview of my case, which uh, has a lot of the same ingredients that 155 other men and women have went through. There's 156 of us total in this country that we know of, that were innocent and spent hundreds of years combined on death row. And my case started in a small town of Paris, Illinois. It's a small farming community, very conservative. Uh, I was raised Catholic. I had granddad as a deputy sheriff. A little brother is just retired from the Illinois State Police. So we learned to cooperate and trust authority, right? Well, in Paris, Illinois, July 6, 1986, there was a gruesome murder of a young newlywed couple Their names were Dyke and Karen Rose. Hadn't been married but three months. They'd rented a house right across the street from my boyhood home. It was my aunt's house at the time. So I knew the area well. And uh, they were viciously stabbed to death over 50 times and their home set on fire. So you can imagine, you know, we've had murders in that town before, but nothing of this magnitude. Three days after the murders, it was the biggest buzz and talk of the town. People wondering how could this happen. My co-defendant and myself had just got off work working construction and we went to a local bar, had a few beers, a hot July afternoon and walked in, it was crowded of course, sat down, got a beer. About that time, phone rang. Bartender said, Randy, it's for you. I answered, it said, Jack Eckerty, Illinois State Police. Randy, uh, is Herb Bear with you? And I go, yeah. And he goes, uh, I'd like for you two to come down to the police station. We'd like to ask you some questions. I said, okay, I got a brand new beer. I said, I'll be down there in about 10, 15 minutes. No sooner than I hung up to turn around to tell my friend what had just happened, five police officers bust through the door. 
probably 60 people in this crowded bar, got immediately silent. They stood back like this, put their hands on their hips, says, come on. So I was humiliated, embarrassed, and quite frankly pissed off because I just told them I'd be down there. Walked out and each got in a squad car, took down to the police station for two hours. As I said, I believed in authority and believed in cooperating with them. I gave them my step-by-step -step whereabouts, where I'd been for the previous week up until this very day, sitting here talking to the cops. And so did Herb Whitlock. He was in another room. After two hours of taking copious notes from what we were saying, we were free to go. We walked out. Little did I know at the time that they actually had my alibi witnesses in the parking lot confirming and corroborating what I was telling them. So we walked back to town, walked back into the bar. Of course, everybody was wagging their tongues and talking, saying, we heard you guys got arrested. I said, no, we were just questioned like everybody else. And once that came out of my mouth, I realized, no, we weren't. We were pulled out of the public's place. They don't can this neighborhood bars. They knock on doors. So this weighed on me for about seven months. Every time I'd go somewhere, people would be looking, staring, and talking. On February 19th, 1987, there was a knock on my door. I open the door, five police officers rush in, throw me down on the floor, handcuff me, leg irons, walk me to the squad car and start reading me my rights. So I'm pretty shocked, see, because I've never been to jail, never been to prison. I did have four battery convictions from barroom fights that I had when I attended bar in a rough joint one time, but it hadn't had anything in nine years. I was busy working construction. Gave up the bartending business. So they took me downtown and put me in a holding cell. I'm pacing back and forth, wondering how in the hell this happened. You know, what kind of evidence could they have on me to charge me? All of a sudden, the door opened. Here comes my little brother. He'd been a city cop for seven years and had just six months earlier had joined the Illinois State Police. So he walks up to the holding cell, pulls up a metal stool, slams it down, looks at me and he goes, okay, I've talked to the lead detectives in this case. I've talked to the prosecutor. They assured me if you cooperate and confess, they won't seek the death penalty. Now I'm not gonna repeat what I said to him that night here, it wouldn't be appropriate because I was trying to grab him by the neck. And he got mad, stepped back real quick and went, slammed that stool down and screamed at me, they don't arrest people that aren't guilty. Now think about that for a second. Because I looked at him and then it dawned on me. You see that blind faith that he had in, a, in that system of being a cop for eight, nine years and now reaching the pinnacle as a state trooper. And I couldn't believe it come out of his mouth. They don't arrest people that aren't guilty. I screamed back at him, find me an attorney. And we did. I got an attorney who was an expert DUI lawyer on Monday, maybe a, a real estate attorney on Wednesday, and Friday he made me hand on a criminal case. That's how naive I was to the type of attorney I would need. And I asked for a speedy trial, and I got one. Got arraigned, found out the evidence 
they were using against me was a town drunk who had five DUI convictions. He had three convictions for deceptive practices and he was facing a 30-day jail term. He said he was an eyewitness to this brutal murder. He told my jury that I gave him a ride home. He passed out in my car. He woke up in front of a strange house. He heard something break, a woman scream. Said he stumbled up the stairs and saw me standing at the foot of the stairs, covered in blood with an eight-inch knife in my hand. That was his testimony to my jury. Another alleged eyewitness, Debbie Reinbold, who had been a prostitute and a drug addict since age 13, said that her and Herb Whitlock had been on drug deals together many times. And the motive of this case was a drug deal gone bad. Even though Dyke and Karen Rhodes had no drugs in their system, had $100 between them and $200 in a bank account. Debbie Reinbolt testified that Herb Whitlock wanted her knife that he knew she carried in her purse all the time. Because he had business to take care of. And she gave it to him in a bar that night somewhere. Couldn't remember where. It was real shady on the details. And that she happened to worry about what he was going to do with that knife. And she happened to drive by the Rose house and see my car there. So she just happened to walk up the stairs. And there, he, there we were, in the bedroom of the Rhodes house. Six people. Daryl Harrington said he didn't see Debbie Reinbolt there. Debbie Reinbolt said she didn't see Daryl Harrington there. So I'm wondering what part of that nap my jury was taking, that that didn't register. But I blame my attorney for not drilling it into the jury's minds. Debbie Reinbolt testified that we took turns using her knife, stabbing Dyke, while she held Karen Rhodes down on the bed, patting her on the back, saying, don't worry about a thing, everything's going to be all right. And then after we finished with Dyke, we turned the attention to, to Karen. They both were stabbed 25 and 27 times. Gruesome murder. This is the evidence that my jury heard. And I felt compelled to get on the witness stand for an hour and a half, batting back and forth with the prosecution about my character, about my background, my four battery charges that I had, misdemeanor charges for fighting in bars, to try to make me look like a bad person. After that hour and a half, I got off the stand. They put on the police, the firemen. Was it trial the prosecutor kept using the fact that Debbie Reinbolt saw a broken lamp or somebody holding a piece of it. It was his crown jewel to show that this mentally ill drug addict woman was present at a crime scene. Because yes, the firemen and the police testified there was a broken lamp. So that was his centerpiece to show she was credible. Daryl Harrington, on the other hand, there was no credible evidence showing that he was there. But Karen Rhodes worked for a manufacturer for about seven years, who became extremely wealthy making dog food ingredients. A week before she was murdered, she went out to the parking lot to deliver a message to him, saw him loading machine guns and money into the car. 
She wanted to quit because it scared her. They didn't deal in cash, they dealt in receipts only. He told her, you can't quit. A week later, her and her husband ends up dead. Everybody knew this, except my jury, because my attorney didn't bring it up. So, after a four-day trial, on the fifth day, they had summations. They said that these two witnesses are credible. They each pointed this out in the courtroom, that we're the ones that committed the crime, even though they introduced no physical evidence, no fingerprints, no DNA, nothing that would link us to these murders. And we had a corroborated alibi, both of us. And yet there was inconsistent statements given by these two individuals on four different occasions that my attorney never utilized at trial where they told the police something different, but the police would keep working with them to get them to describe the crime scene. Debbie Reinbold's knife was five and three-eighths inches long. The fatal wounds were six and two-eighths inches long. They thought, well, a knife can go six inches deep if you plunge it hard enough. The thing of it is, this had a hilt on it, and it would have left a mark on the skin. They charged the jury. The jury went out on day five and came back in six and a half hours later. I watched them walk through the door, hoping I can look on their faces and see something. But they were all looking at the tops of their feet, so I knew it wasn't going to be good. They all sat down. They handed the verdict form to the bailiff. The bailiff took it to the judge. The judge read it and handed it back. felt like an eternity because I was holding my breath, waiting on that verdict. But see, I was listening to hear two words, not guilty. When the verdict form was read, I only heard one utterance. And I looked at my attorney and I see his face turn white. And then I heard my mother wail behind me. And then it registered on me. They just convicted me of this murder I didn't have anything to do with. And it's just like somebody reach over and turn that light switch off in this room on your life. That's the only way I could describe it. Had 10 guards surrounded me, put chains on me, walked me out. On the way out, the judge tells my attorney, sentencing starts first thing in the morning, Mr. Muller. He says, I thought I had two weeks. He goes, no, Mr. Muller, it starts first thing in the morning. Which told me then he hadn't even prepared for the eventuality of a guilty verdict. He knew they were gonna seek the death penalty. Next morning I come in, sit down, my family's behind me again, and the prosecutor gets up and talks about those four misdemeanor battery convictions that I had nine years earlier when I attended bar to show what kind of a violent individual I am and no just punishment other than death he should have. Ten minutes later, the jury goes out, comes back in, the death penalty. Again, I hear my mother with her face buried in her hands, screaming. I got a nine-year-old son sitting there. It's an out-of-body experience. See, you're thinking this is a nightmare that you're just not waking up from. But it's reality. Again, they put the leg irons on me and they walked me off. I went to death row, Pontiac, Illinois. Real scary place. But I'm this hard-headed country boy, I'm thinking I could hold my own, you know? 
And if I told you I wasn't scared, I'd be a fool or a liar because most of them in there are guilty. And there's 160 of us. As soon as I got there, I got into the law library and I started reading about my case. Of course, I had other inmates come by and say, what are you doing? Why don't you come out to the yard, play ball, lift weights? I said, no, you don't realize I'm innocent. I trusted one attorney I don't trust anymore. And I want to figure out how I can get the hell up out of here. And I did for three years. I studied the law and I got an attorney who filed my direct appeal. Before my direct appeal got heard, I had some good news. Debbie Reinbolt and Daryl Harrington had contacted my previous trial attorney and said that they had lied, that the police had forced them to testify. If they didn't testify, they'd be charged further with the crime. That and they were chasing the $25,000 reward that Karen Rhodes' employer immediately started circulating through every bar in town. And lo and behold, who they end up with? A town drunk and a mentally ill woman. Well, I was elated. So the judge ordered an evidentiary hearing to discuss my direct appeal. The day before my evidentiary hearing was to start, I got a call from my lawyer said that the prosecutor had called him and said that Debbie Reinbold and Daryl Harrington had recanted their recantation. So I went to the hearing the next day. It didn't last very long. They put both of them up on the stand. They reaffirmed their trial testimony and pointed at my court-appointed appellate defender as the reason why. This little guy was about 5'4", weighed 130 pounds, fresh out of law school, his very first job. They accused him of threatening and intimidating this seasoned alcoholic and mentally ill woman into recanting. And I remember standing up in the courtroom, screaming at the judge, I'm not paying this man, you gave him to me. He works for the state. He was just doing the job that you assigned to him. He made me sit down and told me to shut up or he was gonna take my mouth. So I sat down, they reaffirmed her trial testimony, he sends me back to death row. So I'm a little bit, uh, you know, pretty down by that time, because now I know I've lost my direct appeal. I got my first execution date. But there's hope because there's a post-conviction pending. And that's not what happened at trial, that's what should have happened, had it not been for an ineffective attorney, perjured testimony, fabricated evidence, prosecutorial misconduct, all this I alleged, but it took me seven and a half years, my mother cleaning houses to save money, to try to hire an expert witness to debunk that lamp evidence, to debunk the murder weapon. We hired Dr. Michael Bodden, a nationally renowned forensic pathologist. He gave testimony. I had a new evidentiary hearing. But before I had this hearing, I had more good news. Debbie Reinbold and Daryl Harrington had recanted for the second time. And this time on videotape. Again, day one of the hearing, they get on the stand. And they say that my new post-conviction attorney threatened and intimidated them to sign that statement. And they reaffirmed her trial testimony again. The judge sat there and looked at the lamp evidence. He had pictures of it. Yeah, there was a broken lamp there. 
The fire was set and it put soot all over that house. Everything was covered in soot. That lamp's laying on, on the floor, face up where the hole is, and it's bone wine on the inside. Which my arson investigator testified the lamp was broken after the suppression of the fire. Didn't go through a fire. Judge looked at all that. Because at trial, the prosecutor looked at it and said it was proof that Debbie Reinbolt was there. She saw that broken lamp. And years later, we find out that a fireman's axe is what broke that lamp. But the fireman never came forward. He was willing to keep silent so the state could preserve its case. Looked at the knife evidence. Dr. Michael Bowden opined on the knife and said it wasn't long enough. It's got a hilt, and it would have left a mark on the outside of the skin. The judge looked at that. He wrote an opinion six weeks later on the knife evidence and on the lamp evidence, and he said the lamp is a relatively unimportant part of the state's case because we have two perpetrators. Same thing with the knife. I was wondering what hearing did this judge sit in when he's listened to expert testimony. Again, this is a new judge. 90 days later, I get an opinion affirming my conviction and my sentence, and I get my second execution date. And I know this one's real. I lost my post-conviction petition. I've spent over nine years in prison already. And I can't believe the state appeals process is nothing more than an exercise in futility and all I have is a judge sitting on the bench as a prosecutor in robes. That's all it is. But then it dawned on me. Well, they both get their checks from the same place. What? The state. So they're protecting each other. And about this time, I've had a lot of good press. Chicago Sun-Times, Chicago Tribune, 48 Hours News Program did an in-depth series on my case. They had journalism students. I went down to Paris, Illinois, reinvestigated, found 20 extra witnesses that the state and the police could have identified, and so could have my attorneys had they done the legwork. So the state police were getting a little embarrassed by this press, favorable to me, even though the judges keep denying me. So they hired a investigator from Chicago. His name was Michael Callahan, 20-some-year veteran of the Illinois State Police. He did a, had three weeks to review my case. Before he could open it up, the lead prosecutor and these two dirty cops that helped frame me had called him up and said, hey, listen, don't make us old boys look bad. We're not a dirty cop. He told me years later, Randy, he said that was the first red flag. He said, I might have made a mistake in my career on a license plate or the color of a car, whether it's a two-door or a four-door. He said, I would have never made any mistakes. I would be afraid somebody looking over my shoulder years later. And these people were definitely worried about it. And he was busy. He worked 10, 12 hours a day on this case for three weeks. And he had over 300 stickums on his hall wall, his wife told me, where there was red flags, red flags, where the police reports didn't jive with one another when both cops are interviewing the same witness at the same time. He said at best it was the shoddiest police work he ever saw, and at worst 
It was a frame job. He took all this evidence to the Illinois State Police brass, the colonels, and told them that he believes that he can lead a roadmap right to Karen Rhodes' employer, who was connected with the mob. And he also believes that they have two innocent men locked up all these years, and he wants to open a full-blown investigation with the U.S. Marshals, the FBI, and do undercover work on Bob Morgan. State police gave him a blank check, so go right ahead. Well, after about four or five weeks, he went back to the state police. He had additional evidence he wanted to share with him. Karen Rhodes' employer had made tens of thousands of dollars of campaign donations, all the way up to Governor George Ryan's office. At that time, George Ryan had his own problems. He was uh, getting ready to be indicted for a license for bribe scandal, where he was selling driver's license to illegal immigrants. So he had his own legal problems. But when Mike Callahan told the state police this, they leaned back in their chairs and said, we'll get back with you. Two days later, they called him back to Springfield and said, listen, we're stopping the investigation into cease and desist in this. We want you to be a listening post only for us, and you report back only to us. Mike Callahan looked at him and said, what are you talking about? I'm leaving a map to you people on who I think contracted these murders and trying to give closure to the victim's family members and free these two guys. Again, they said, listen, you are to cease and desist. This case is too politically sensitive and it comes from the top. We all know where the top's at, the governor's office. So he left dejected, but he didn't quit. He flew under the radar and he had to walk on eggshells, but he continued to get informants and he tried five more times to reopen the case with additional evidence. Every time was denied. They were circling the wagons around the governor at the expense of me and Herb Whitlock. About this time, I'd been locked up almost 12 years. And I got a break. On my last appeal, the Illinois Supreme Court ruled that my attorney was ineffective, not at trial, but at sentencing for not putting on any mitigation evidence at all. Therefore, they ordered a new sentencing hearing. But because of all this publicity, the state decided they weren't going to seek the death penalty anymore. They wanted life without parole. And that's what they gave me. I was more angry leaving there with life without parole than the day I was when I got the death penalty. Because I'd watched 11 men walk by my cell and be executed over 12 years. None of them went kicking and screaming. They all had smiles on their face. And I knew why, because in five minutes on that gurney, they're going to be released. But here I am doing life without parole and having to deal with more anger, more rage, more hate everywhere I go and have to sell with somebody. And sometimes it was somebody different every week or every month. So it was, uh, existing like an animal in a zoo is what it was. But Mike Callahan got with my attorneys and they went to the Attorney General's office because they were filing my federal habeas corpus. This is a petition. This is the court of last resort. If you lose here, you die in prison. 
And chances were I was gonna die in prison because not too many federal judges overturn 15 years of state court findings. So I knew it was an uphill battle. And I filed that petition. I've been locked up 15, almost 16 years. And every day I was holding my breath thinking, any day they could come down with that decision. It took nine months. One day I got a call. I come to the captain's office because I had a legal call. Longest walk I ever took. I remember walking in there and the captain handed me the phone. He sat back in his chair. He said, Randy? I said, yeah. He said, are you sitting down? And I went, I am now. He said, I want you to know that Judge McCuskey has just granted all 17 issues of your federal habeas corpus petition. And, uh, excuse me, I get emotional when I think about this because I said, could you repeat that, please? He says, Randy, you're going home. You're getting a new trial. But I didn't get a new trial. I didn't get to walk out immediately because the state had the option of appealing this to the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. They're very conservative. They've overturned more new trials for death row inmates than I can count. They're happy one month, the next month they're strapped to a gurney. No new trial, no nothing. So I knew this could be overturned. But Callahan, this honest cop, went to that attorney general and demanded her to call in Debbie Reinbold and question her, and she did. And she asked her about the lamp evidence. And they said, well, I don't know anything about a lamp. They told me there was a broken lamp. And she was chasing that $25,000 reward, this mentally ill woman. Well, that's when the Attorney General, Lisa Madigan, refused to appeal the case. Went back to the state court. They had a 120-day clock. It was ticking to either retry me or release me. They couldn't retry me because I'd already debunked the murder weapon, the lamp evidence, and now we got two recantations, and now we got a third for admissions to the Attorney General that the cops told them what to say. So on May 28, 2004, after 17 years, three months, and three weeks, I walked out of prison. Went in at 35, got out at 54, a month shy of my 54th birthday. But you see, that's why when I got out, I realized that something seriously flawed. And I got a call one day from one of my attorneys. He said, Randy, he says, uh, the guy called me today. He's the head of an organization called Witness to Innocence. It was founded by Sister Helen Prejean, the author of Dead Man Walking. I said, yeah, we'd like for you to come to Wisconsin to a gathering, all expenses paid for the weekend. It'd be a four day event. I go, what do I want to go hang out with death row inmates for? He says, Brandy, because they're as innocent as you are. And it clicked in my head. I'm going, okay, that's interesting. I said, okay, I'll do it. And I walked in the very first day when they called a meeting together and everybody sat in a big circle. I looked at 18 other death row exonerees sitting there and I saw that same look in their eyes that pain, that anguish, that rage that they feel for losing a third or a fourth or a half their lives for something they didn't do. 
And that's when I dedicated myself to the fact that these people want to do away with the death penalty in this country and kill the thing that almost killed us. And I've been part of that organization for 10 years and I just recently rotated off the board of directors as chairman and I'm back out canvassing different states, speaking to individuals. But I'd like for you to think about something. When I was on death row and I watched them 11 guys walk by, four of them I knew real well and the captain of the guard let them stop and shake my hand. And all I could do was shake them hand and look them in the eye and say, Godspeed. Not a one of them went kicking and screaming. They all went with their heads up. And I assumed they were guilty. They're still human beings. And I got to thinking about those six years of doing life after death row. And all the pain and the dealings you had to deal with a, with a cellmate. And the monotony was maddening. And you're still locked up 18 hours a day with somebody you don't necessarily get along with. And I got to thinking there's a lot of times I'd wake up in the middle of the night, if they'd rolled that gurney by my cell, I'd have buckled myself on it. That's how damn miserable you were doing life without parole. And I decided right then and there that I know why those guys had smiles on their face. They were being released after five or 10 minutes on that gurney. You're being released after decades in a cage. I wasn't living. You're existing, that's not living. And that's when I realized the death penalty is slowly as it's dying. It is dying in this country, state by state. And I realized if you really want to punish a vicious killer, you put them in a cage for the rest of their life you make them think about the crimes they committed. And when they die, if they haven't repented to their Lord or their God, then they burn in hell. That's punishment. At least you don't risk the possibility of executing an innocent person. And we all know we have. The courts have. There's been innocent people put to death in this country. Because you've got to remember something. You can release an innocent man from prison. I'm living proof of that me and 155 others, but you cannot release us from the grave. So I want you to take away with you tonight and think about that. You want somebody to sit on death row 15, 20 years and then put them to sleep? <clears throat> or would you like to keep them healthy, keep them alive, make them work and pay restitution back to the victim's family members? Why? releasing and that's what you're doing i was wondering about your child when you're on death row if my you're able yeah if you're able to see your son he's nine years old and my mom would bring him to see me about once a month well my son had a lot of issues growing up without me my brother raised him uh he's got a lot of issues with authority but he did join the military at age 18, and he's been in 19 years now, and he's a staff sergeant, a recruiter. And I got a 21-year-old grandson that's now in ROTC, and he's gonna be career military. So he's done all right, but uh, he had a hard upbringing. Yes? I was wondering about your 
brother's view on this whole outcome? Well, it took about two years. He'd come to the visiting room, you know, and I'd sit there and treat him like I did when he was five years old with police reports showing him where it don't add up. They'd given two, three different statements, and then the light came on. He got pissed off. Now, it's a little late, but at least you got, you got it. But he ended up working with Callahan below the radar, and he's become my staunchest supporter to this very day. He couldn't wait to take that Illinois State Police uniform off for good. It didn't mean that much to him anymore after what he saw the high brass of the Illinois State Police do to his brother. Yes? You know, you kind of talked about this at the end, but how do you keep going crazy in prison and not knowing if you're going to get out and have this kind of tension, anxiety going on? You know, well, in, in prison, the only thing I worried about was losing my mind because I've seen inmates lose their mind. And once you lose your mind, all they do is medicate you. And then you walk around with that Thorazine shuffle because they're harmless. And that's the only thing I was afraid of. If you don't work your mind and physically work your body. And they only let you out of the cage an hour a day to work your body. So you go 90 mile an hour for an hour. You wear yourself out to where you can sleep at night and read and listen to music, watch the little TV programs. That's all there is to do. That's all I did for 12 years. 23 hours a day in a cage. No bigger than your bathroom. So if you can go into your bathroom next time, imagine living in it for 23 hours a day. Having cockroaches and mice running in and out of your cell all the time. Having guards come by wrapping the bars four or five times a day to make sure you don't have something to cut a bar and get out. That's the kind of abuse you suffer on death row. That's the kind of abuse you suffer doing life also. But I choose life. I think uh, there's a lot of those death row inmates that they deserve to live, maybe not. Does the state have a right to put people to death? I say no. Because I think we have the best justice system in the world, but it's a few of the bad apples within that system. They're nothing more than thugs with badges that gives rise to why we have wrongful convictions. They're not interested in justice. They're interested in winning. If you win a capital case, it increases your chances of being a judge someday. It's a resume builder. It's not a perfect system. Illinois alone had 20 exonerees out of 164. I had no idea a lot of the times I was walking around on a yard with guys that were just as innocent as I was. Because everybody on death row says they're innocent, right? The problem is 20 of us actually didn't do it. Don't anybody think it's not easy to get locked up. It's damn hard to get set free. It, it's always been a way to control people and to fatten their wallets and stuff. I mean, it's big business. That's what our, our prison system is. It's no rehabilitation, it's warehousing. Yeah. Illinois in the 90s 
they charge $38,000 per death row inmate to the taxpayer. On a regular inmate, it was only $18,000. But it is, it's big business. There's no rehabilitation. We incarcerate more people in this country than any other country. There's pres presently almost 4 million people incarcerated in this country. Can you imagine that? And the major percentage of them are in for nonviolent offenses. When you see how effective these exonerees are when they go lobby legislators or speak to faith groups and colleges, you change people's hearts and minds one heart and mind at a time. We're not trying to control the masses. We're asking people to look at it for yourself. Look at cases and you'll see wrongful convictions. Prosecutorial misconduct, police misconduct, fabricated evidence, suborning perjury. Now, you get 12 people that they say is a jury of your peers. I was 35, every one of my jurors were 50 and 60. Couldn't get a black person on there, hell no. They wanted all white people. But each and every one of them were pulled before they heard any evidence. They were death qualified. They said, if we sustain a conviction in this case. Can you and would you impose a death sentence on this man? And they all agreed, yeah. So before any evidence is heard, I got 12 people that just said they can kill me. And it's rigged. Why does the prosecutor who's, uh, they put on a pillar that thinks he's just doing his job, a great public servant, why does he get to sit right next to the jury box? Why is that? Why does a defendant have to sit clear across the other side of the courtroom with an attorney? You see how the stage is set? I'm Kelly Haywood, and you are listening to Mountain Talk Monday on WMMT. Real stories, real news, Real People Radio, brought to you straight from the heart of central Appalachia. Thanks for listening. The Ohio Valley's opioid epidemic has effects far beyond the individuals struggling through addiction. Families and children are suffering as well. Aaron Payne reports on how an organization that helps abused and neglected children is dealing with a flood of cases linked to the addiction crisis. Tessa DeTiro walks into a small storefront in downtown Moundsville, West Virginia. After speaking with me, she will talk with the volunteer coordinator about a court case she has been working on since August involving an infant and a young child. DeTiro is a local television journalist, but also a community volunteer assigned to her first case for court-appointed special advocates for children. CASA, for short, trains people nationwide to be the objective voice of children involved in abuse and neglect cases. Tiro says her job is to get to know the families involved, but remain objective when making recommendations on the children's behalf. She says it can be difficult when evaluating the emotional effect the situation has on the older child. It was sad for him on his birthday. His uh, parents couldn't be there. His parents didn't even reach out to him. But she says her training has taught her to focus on what is best for the children and not get too involved personally. This case, like many others CASA volunteers deal with, involves parents who suffer from a substance use disorder. The region's addiction crisis is making it difficult to reunite families and threatens to overwhelm some CASA programs. 
Susan Harrison, executive director for the CASA organization covering four West Virginia counties, says the opioid epidemic has contributed to an increased caseload for 2016. 162 new cases. In 2010, we were serving 50 new kids a year. She estimates that up to 90% of their caseload involves addiction. The number of volunteers has not increased with the caseload. When your caseload has doubled and then tripled just in two years, finding those CASA volunteers willing to give the time and the energy to these cases is difficult. The 11 CASA nonprofits serving 13 counties in West Virginia share similar challenges. Those challenges extend across the border to Ohio. When directors for 40 CASA programs covering 47 counties gathered December 3rd and 4th at a statewide conference in Columbus, it didn't take long for the opioid epidemic to come up. As we talked about yesterday, you're all getting connected. That's statewide director Doug Stevens. He says CASA programs in Ohio are also in need of resources. On top of recruiting new advocates, they have been pushing for additional funding. The courts CASA operates in through the Ohio Valley are advocating for the program. Judge Robert Stewart appoints CASA volunteers to abuse and neglect cases in the Athens County Probate and Juvenile Courts. He's been working with CASA for more than a decade. This happens to be, I think, one of the most worthy programs that you could volunteer for. With the rise of the opioid epidemic, Judge Stewart says CASA is a necessity for courts. Having someone who is able to present it from the eyes of the child uh, and look only at the best interest of the child is a very refreshing um, outlook. But the opioid epidemic is presenting challenges to the Athens County CASA program as well. Executive Director Jenny Stotts. I dream of the day that we will have a waiting list of volunteers waiting for a child to serve instead of a waiting list of children waiting for a CASA. Go to Kentucky and you will hear similar stories. The number of volunteers for the 18 programs currently operating across 41 counties has not increased much. The programs across the Ohio Valley continue to recruit people from all walks of life to take the 30-hour training and become advocates. For Tessa DeTiro, balancing her job as a local television journalist and her work with CASA can be a challenge. But to see the positive impacts on a child who has experienced abuse and neglect is rewarding. It's fun to hear that he loves to do sports, that he loves math. So that's been the really rewarding part. For the Ohio Valley Resource, I'm Aaron Payne. Ohio Valley Resource is made possible with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and WMMT. Have you written a book or anything? Mike Callahan wrote a book. It's called Since When Is Murder Too Politically Sensitive? Used their own words against him that he was told by the Illinois State Police. Had a 9% error rate when it comes to the death penalty. I was the 18th that was released. There were two more after me. You just can't play God. I mean, you wouldn't get on an airplane if there was 20 chances out of 160 it was going to crash, would you? No. There's 20 chances now it's going to go down. This system's already crashed and burned. And if that's the ratio for death row, imagine when the stakes are lower. Oh, I mean, every state we've had an exoneree released. Every state that has an active death row. Every state. Every state that's had the death penalty. Could you just say where and when was it that this all happened again? It happened in Paris, Illinois in 1986. I was convicted in 87 on the word of a town drunk and a mentally ill woman, no physical evidence tying me to the crime whatsoever. And uh, I had a 
incompetent attorney at trial. I didn't do any leg work, no investigation. And I went from the comforts of my home to death row in 97 days. Unheard of today. So how much do you think things have changed since, what was it, 1987 you said? I think nowadays the only thing that's changed is it's a state law that you must have two capitally qualified attorneys to defend you. One real estate attorney is not going to get it, and they finally acknowledge that. What was it like, you know, the first time, you know, getting away from prison, and, you know, I can just realize when you were getting to go? Like, uh, it was like being reborn. I call May 28th my second birthday. June 29th is my first. The air was much sweeter on that side of the wall. When I got that call from my attorney that I was getting a new trial and I was going to go home, you know, it was just so overwhelming because for almost 18 years, all I got was bad news. And I was preparing myself for bad news when I made that long walk to the captain's office that day. And I was so overwhelmed when uh, she said, Randy, are you sitting down? And I said, yes. And she says, the judge has just granted you a new trial. I just remember tears streaming down my face because I said, can you repeat that? And she did. She screamed it at me on the phone. And uh, it was a very emotional moment for me. So what do you feel now as you, you know, use your words to bring that moment here into this room? What does it feel it's like now? It's very emotional for me because I realized how emotional it was for my mother and my son and uh, the trauma and the turmoil they went through all those years. So the feeling now, I mean, is it like, is it painful? Is it pleasant? Is it what? It's a mixture of both. I mean, speaking about my case is, is therapeutic on one hand, but it's still traumatizing on the other because I'm reliving it. And, uh, but I realize it balances itself out because I know I'm, I'm educating the right people, which is the public. And when they have an opportunity to vote the death penalty out and put it on the junk pile along with slavery and everything else that this country participated in years ago, that's when maybe I know that I'm just a spoke in the wheel, but I've helped to make a difference. What would you recommend to youth and stuff like today, you know, to get this Tucker Ledger Slater's attention? I recommend you write letters and find out who your state rep is, your state senator, write them letters, go visit them, bring the issue up, ask where they stand and why they believe in the death penalty. There ought to be rehabilitation in prison. Instead of having the recidivism rights, it'd be rehabilitation, not warehousing. If you had just one word you wanted people to think about. One word? It can be a phrase if you want to stretch it. I would say that you can release an innocent man from prison. You can't release him from his grave. Thank you for listening to our program. For more information, visit www.wmmt.org. This has been Mountain Talk, and I'm Kelly Haywood for WMMT. Real stories, real news, Real People Radio. I hope you have an excellent evening.